This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, starting with verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the year 1930, Mahatma Gandhi pulled together a group of friends and they began planning a protest march across Western India. It was a march that was going to go 241 miles. It was a protest called the Salt March that was against the salt laws in India at the time because it was under British rule and England had required that um, all salt, salt that was sold in India must be sold by approved British providers. And then there was a tax on it, so the price of it had gone up. So they planned this protest march to protest against it, and they were going to march 241 miles across India to the coastline where they were going to collect a little salt and then sell it. They were going to defy that law and sell some salt. Well, as he made this plan, and this plan was about something bigger than just salt, but as he made this plan, he decided to use salt as kind of the symbolic issue to make the point. A lot of people weren't that impressed with salt being chosen as the symbolic issue. The Statesman, a large English-speaking newspaper in India at the time, British-owned, it said that they couldn't help but laugh. They wrote an article about how they couldn't help but laugh about it. And they said that they believed that any thinking Indian would join them in that opinion. The British Viceroy of India at the time, Lord Irwin, said at present the prospect of a salt campaign does not keep me awake at night. What's the big deal? It's salt. Who's really going to care about a bunch of salt, right? So the salt's a little more expensive, so you can't sell it, so what? Later Gandhi explained that the reason he chose salt, even though some of his own friends disagreed with him, the reason he chose salt as the issue around which to kind of highlight the principle was because he said salt touched the life of every single person in India. Because in that sweltering climate, every person needed it as a part of their diet. Every person needed it for preservation of food. He said it was one issue that he found that no matter whether you were wealthy or poor, male or female, Hindu or Muslim, it just didn't matter. This issue touched your life. It may not have been huge in your life, but it touched your life. And he wanted to draw attention to it. And so he did this march, and, and again, people are thinking this isn't going to be very effective. 
But as he made his way across the country, other newspapers began following it, and people even around the world began following it. New York Times began publishing daily updates on his progress across India. Uh, later that year, India, um, Gandhi became Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Uh, so people started paying attention, and within the country, people started paying attention. Eventually, this small group that was marching across started being joined by others, and by the end of the march, as they were reaching the coastline, they said that the line was miles long with thousands of people following him. And in that following week, they said that protests began uh, growing all over the country in front of British-owned businesses and government buildings. Uh, government workers, Indian government workers, began going on strike. There were boycotts all over the country. Eventually, it led to Gandhi being arrested and over 80,000 people being arrested. So at that point, I think the Viceroy was losing some sleep. At that point, it became a much bigger issue than anybody expected. As I read that story this last week, I thought, it is interesting that sometimes the thing that seems most foolish stirs the most curiosity. It's the thing that sometimes will kind of grab people's attention. And this seemed to do that. It seemed to do it because why is this man who's been, who's been kind of raising up this issue of British rule and oppression, why is he choosing salt as an issue? But that curiosity, that surprise, that, that even mocking it, at least he had their attention. At least they were looking and listening. And now he got to make a point about a bigger issue to everybody whose life it touched. I, I thought of that because as I walked into this story today, this is another story that a lot of people really don't understand, especially the story about the fig tree. It's a story that people look at and go, that just does not make sense. Why in the world is Jesus this incredible power to perform miracles, why does he waste a miracle on cursing a tree because it didn't have figs on it? Matter of fact, Mark tells us it wasn't the season for figs. This is the land Jesus grew up in. Jesus surely understood fig trees. They were everywhere. He understood the fruit. He understood the growing season. I'm sure he understood something about there's probably not going to be fruit on this tree I'm walking over to. But as he's walking with his disciples and he tells, they know he's hungry, he's told them, he walks over to this fig tree that's in leaf that looks like a tree that it would look when it had figs. And he walks over and he looks at it, has no figs, nothing to satisfy his hunger, and he curses it. And we're told later in the story that when they walk by it again, that it's dead all the way to the roots. He curses it, says that no one will ever eat from you again, and, and he curses it to the point of destruction. It will be no longer. Bertrand Russell, a mathematician and philosopher, a self-proclaimed atheist, after reading this story, he accused Jesus of vindictive fury. He wrote, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. That this was just an example of someone who was mad and pouting and didn't get his way. And he went off on a poor tree, you know, and cursed this thing. But even if you don't share his extreme opinion, it does seem kind of strange. Why curse a poor tree for doing what the tree always does, right? Well, I think Jesus was doing what Jesus so often did. He took a real-life situation, something that they all knew and understood, and he used that real-life situation to then point them to a bigger truth, to something heavenly, something beyond even this world. And I think he's doing it again. Often he did that with just his words, this time he does it with his words and with his actions. 
this tree that, is, that looks fruitful, that looks like it will provide what a tree, what a fig tree is meant to provide, fruit. It's not. And because it's not, it's become worthless. Because it's not, it will now be judged and it will be destroyed. Making a point, I think. Um, if you like sports at all, follow sports at all this last week, you've probably heard a lot about Cam Newton, probably like me more than you want to hear. Because after the Super Bowl, there was so much said about him. He was the losing quarterback in the Super Bowl, if you didn't watch the Super Bowl. Uh, so much was said about his reactions as things went wrong in the game and, and then his post-game interview and people said things like he was pouting and he was a sore loser and you know, being immature and all those kind of things. Matter of fact, he later said of himself he is a bad loser. He, he kind of said it was a virtue, not a problem in his eyes, but he said he was a bad loser. He hates to lose. Again, that's the reaction a lot of people have to this story. That this is just Jesus pouting. This is Jesus not getting his way. But again, I think Mark is letting us know something more is going on here than just that. And part of the way he lets us know is he wraps this story around another story. In the midst of this story, so it begins and then it ends, and in the middle, we have this other story of Jesus entering the temple. And I think those two are bound together. The message is bound together between those two. So before we take a look at that story, I just want to let you know some things about the temple and the life of Israel and the life of Jerusalem at that time. I have a picture up here. This is a model of the temple in Jerusalem. This was a massive structure. This dominated the skyline of Jerusalem at the time. So if you look around the outside, there's this roof that goes all the way around the outside of this largest court. And you see those little columns that hold up that roof. Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, said that each of those columns was 35 feet high. In each of those columns, to reach around them, three people had to hold hands to reach around the circumference of just one of those columns. This is a massive, massive structure in Jerusalem. It wasn't completed at the time of Jesus, but it was, again, well along the way towards completion at that time. But this was more than just a big building. This was also central to the life of the Jewish people and of Jerusalem. It was not only the places where sacrifices took place, where, where God met with his people. But as one commentator wrote, it also served as the central bank, the Capitol building, and Wall Street all in one. In Jerusalem, it was probably the primary employer. Probably most people who actually lived in the city of Jerusalem in some way were employed by the temple. This place was central to the life of Jews in Jerusalem at that time. So Jesus walks into this place and, and he gets upset, it seems, again. You know, you read these stories, you think he was just in a bad mood. Curses a fig tree, now he comes in here. And he walks into this outer courtyard, and there are people there that are selling animals for sacrifice, to be used in sacrifice. And he, he goes, and we're told he pushes over the bench of those that were selling doves. And there are people there who are exchanging money, and the money was needed for two things, to give their offerings, but the money was also needed to pay the temple tax. And this was the time of the year when the temple tax had to be paid. So people who would come in, there was only one form of currency that was acceptable for the temple. And most didn't carry that form of currency. So it was necessary to convert, most of them carried Roman currency, to convert that currency into the shekel that was acceptable in the temple. They had to do that. So when he comes in, this selling of animals and this changing of money, they were necessary activities. We think of those as bad activities, they were absolutely necessary. People traveling from all over the area would come to Jerusalem, Passover, to make these sacrifices. And again, huge amounts of activity. Josephus said later in 66 AD, 
at the completion of the temple at that Passover, over 255,000 lambs were sacrificed at that Passover. Huge amount of activity going on at this building this time of year. Money had to be exchanged. Uh, animals, they could bring their own unblemished animals for sacrifice, but that was hard to do. Matter of fact, it was hard to bring them and keep them unblemished. So it was easier to arrive and to purchase them. So again, necessary activities for the temple to do what the temple was supposed to do. But Jesus goes in and he starts turning over the tables. In fact, it even says then he stopped any merchandise from moving through this courtyard, this outer courtyard. He stopped allowing. And the reason he stopped allowing merchandise from moving in and out of this courtyard seems to be because he wanted the activity of the temple to come to a stop. Because that word translated merchandise, a lot believe it's actually a word that's often used to talk about the vessels that were used as part of sacrifices and part of worship in the altar. So it's not just any merchandise, it was specifically stuff used for the activities of the temple, the activities they were supposed to be performing. And so Jesus stops that from happening. Now, why? Why in the world would he do this? A lot of people assume it must have been because there was some kind of price gouging going on in the temple courts. And the reason they think that is because it says that he turned over the, the benches of those who were selling doves. And doves were the animal of sacrifice for the poor. They were allowed to sacrifice doves because they couldn't afford the other animals. So the assumption is he turned that one over because they were probably price gouging and taking advantage of the poor. And the money changers because they were taking advantage of the foreigners. But the truth is everybody had to exchange their money. And Jesus drove out the buyers and the sellers. So it wasn't just those who were selling, you drove everybody out. They were all stopped. If it was just the sellers doing something wrong, why did he drive out the buyers? Why did he stop all the activity of the temple in that moment? It seems like maybe something else was going on at that point. And I think Jesus gives us a clue to what else is going on. Because he quotes, as he's, either as this is going on or right after, he quotes from two Old Testament passages. Uh, and he lets us know why he is upset. The first one he quotes is from Isaiah 56. He says, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, that comes from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And if you go to that passage, what you'll find is um, Isaiah is talking to a group of people that he's saying, you know, you have felt left out. You have felt like you're on the outsider, like God's blessing is not available to you. Like you can't be included in worship. So you're the foreigner, or you're the eunuch, he pointed out, or or you're the Jew who has somehow been cast aside and you've not been included. And Isaiah prophesies a day is coming when you'll all be invited in, when you'll all be included, when you'll stand shoulder to shoulder together and you will worship God and you will experience God's blessing and God's joy. That day is coming. And he ends the passage with these words. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Solomon in the first temple seemed to understand this. He seemed to understand that the goal, God's goal was the temple be a place when people, no matter what their differences, come together before God. That what drew them together was that they together bowed before the one true God. This would be a place of equality before God, not a place of difference because God was at the center of it all. So Solomon seemed to understand that in the first temple, because in the first temple, at the dedication of it, he prays. Praise God, may the foreigners come here. 
May they feel welcomed here. May they, may they see their prayers answered in your temple. May this be a place where the foreigner feels invited in. He prayed that. And in Solomon's temple, there weren't, this, if you could pull up those courts again, pull back to the orange, yeah, the one right after that. So in, Solomon, in Herod's temple, so Solomon's temple was eventually destroyed. Herod's temple, this other temple that was being built, in this temple, you see there's a Gentile's court. Gentiles were only allowed in that court. They weren't allowed to move into the inner court. Then there was a court of women that only Jewish women were allowed. Then there was the court of Israel that only circumcised Jewish men were allowed. Then there was the inner court, the court of priests. Well, by the time Herod's, court, Herod's temple had come, Gentiles were excluded from anywhere but the outer court. It wasn't true in Solomon's temple. They worshiped together. But here they've been separated. Matter of fact, they had so strongly been separated, there were signs. They've actually found the signs. They were put up on the walls between the court of Gentiles and the court that led into the court of women. Here's what the signs said. Any Gentile who proceeds beyond this point will be responsible for their own death, which will shortly ensue. Uh, walk through this gate, and you're responsible when we kill you. Uh, do not walk through this gate, in other words. So one, the segregation has now happened. Now the Gentiles are pushed to the outside. They're kind of lesser participants. Even women are pushed in some ways to the outside, lesser participants. Something's changed. Matter of fact, this activity of selling the animals and exchanging money, it was, again, necessary activity had gone on for a very long time. What had changed is under Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, he had allowed a few years earlier for that activity to move inside the courts. It was now taking place inside the court of Gentiles. Before it always occurred outside, and it still was, still on the Mount of Olives outside nearby. They were still doing all of this. But he allowed some of it to move inside the court. So now the only place that the Gentiles are allowed to come and worship God and to pray, it's been turned into a big farmer's market. So guess who the second-class citizens are in this system now? So Jesus comes in, and he says, that's not how it should be. My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. Second thing he says is you've turned it into a den of robbers. So that phrase people look at and they go, well, that's, that's what it must be. And again, the problem. The problem was they were taking advantage of people. They were ripping people off. That's where the price gouging idea comes. It was a, it's turned into a den of robbers. Um, and again, I, I think that's reasonable to think that could be happening because we do know that the religious leaders of that time were kind of greedy people often. Many of them were doing some unethical things. Jesus even said later, you devour the houses of widows. They were doing some wrong things. But this phrase comes again from Jeremiah chapter 7. And if you look at Jeremiah chapter 7, that's really not how it's being used. The den of robbers was not the place where the crimes took place. The den of robbers was the hideout you ran back to. The den of robbers was where you ran to find safety after you committed the crime. So Jeremiah is talking to this group of people and he's telling them, you are, you are doing these horrible things to people. You are doing these horrible things in denial of God. And then you run back to the temple, and he repeats it three times. You say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The image there is almost, you know, like when you're a kid and you're playing hide-and-go-seek, and you got this safe place, you know, that you're trying to get to. And you finally run, and you get to the safe place without getting caught. And I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. No one can touch me here now, I'm safe saying that's what you guys are doing 
you're running out and doing these horrible things, sinning against your God and sinning against others, and then you run back to the temple and think somehow there's this little magic thing that happens and you're safe now. You can't be judged because you've come to the temple. Well, you've misunderstood the temple. Jeremiah writes again at the end of this passage, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. The temple was meant to be a place where God meets with his people, where you come become before the one true, living, holy God, and you humbly bow before him. And there you seek forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation through him, that you might go out and live for him and serve him. It was meant to be the place where we are made right with God because we can't deal with our sins on our own. We need him. You've turned it instead into a place that justifies your sin, allows you to continue sinning, feel okay about your sin. The temple's lost its purpose. The temple that was meant to be a place where the foreigner was invited in, where everybody came in and felt welcome and invited because we are going to bow before God, the one and only God, and if we accept him as our God, we stand shoulder to shoulder. In this place where we come before the one true holy God and we bring our sins before him that we might be made right before him and reconciled to him. This is because we want to put away our sin, not because we want to revel in it. The temple's lost its purpose. The temple is not fulfilling the purpose for which it is designed. Just like that fig tree is not fulfilling the purpose for which it is designed. It is not providing fruit. The temple is not accomplishing what the temple is supposed to accomplish. So what's Jesus do? Jesus curses the tree. He destroys it. He doesn't fix it. He doesn't suddenly make fruit sprout out, right? He actually destroys it. You're not fulfilling your purpose. You will be destroyed. There's no reason for you. And then he goes into the temple. A lot of people say he cleansed the temple. I don't think he cleansed it. I think he stopped it. He, he ceased the activity that went on in it. It came to an end, at least for a moment. In a symbolic way, he said, you are no longer doing anything that matters. The activity here will stop. And in both things, I think he's pointing to something. He's pointing to the fact that the, the temple no longer is fulfilling its purpose, and it will be destroyed. That's the bad news. Here's the good news in that story. The good news is the one who's standing before you doing this. The one who is assuming he has the authority to judge the temple. Who is he? The temple is no longer fulfilling its purpose. The temple will be judged and destroyed. But who stands before you with the authority to actually say that? It's the one that Matthew later tells us. He's the one who's greater than the temple. Matthew said the one who is greater than the temple is here. Yes, the temple will be destroyed. But look who has more authority than the temple. He's here. He announces forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who included the sick and the disabled, the women, the foreigners, the poor, those who have failed and been rejected, those who are outsiders. He invites them all in. Jesus is the one who replaces the tables of the money changers with the table of the Lord. 
And this is a place where, where he announces his free offering of, of his life for the forgiveness of sins. He sheds his own blood to replace once and for all the system of animal sacrifice for atonement. His death is where humankind can be reconciled to God. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that Christ, in Christ, those walls that separated will be broke down. There will no longer be this segregation in Christ, that we stand shoulder to shoulder before him and because of him. Jesus is the one through whom we encounter the true and living God. In both stories, I think what Jesus is saying and why Mark binds them together, he is saying what was, where you came to personally meet with your God, it has failed to meet its purpose. But that's not the end of the story. Because all it was meant to do was point you to this one who now stands before you. The one who will completely, fully fulfill that purpose. Jesus Christ. It's actually good news. So today I want to leave you with a couple of practical things that you could do maybe to apply some of the principles here. Uh, don't have to do these exact things. These are some ideas. But I, I want to give you some homework to go out and maybe make some application. How do we apply these principles today to our own life and our relationship with Christ and how we approach Him? The first, one idea. Confront one area in your life this week where you value appearance but have lacked substance. By that I mean we, we often come before God and we have these things that we say, well, we look good and we care about the... We wouldn't try to look good in these things if we didn't care about them, right? They matter to us. We want to call them good. I want other people to see those things in me. I may actually want them for me. They're appearance kind of things. They matter to me. But some of those things you know, there's not a lot of substance behind the appearance. They matter to me. It's who I wish to be and who I want to be. But if I'm honest, I know it's not me at all, really. Saying maybe this week, pray about, look for, confront one of those areas. Take one of those and say, how do I bring that appearance and that reality closer together? How do I do that? Well, maybe one of the ways I do that is I kind of stop the false advertising. Maybe I'd be more, a little more honest about where I am. So pull back from that appearance. But even more importantly, maybe what I do is start taking steps to live out the very thing that I care about being seen as. I want to somehow bring those two together. And a lot of times, there's a reason I say we ought to pray about these and let God maybe expose something to us, because a lot of times we're not really even aware of it. There's an appearance of something, and we, we feel pretty good about it. We have our, our kind of things down we should be doing, and we think we're doing them. But maybe where the reality is missing is they've kind of lost their purpose. Uh, you know, we all have lists. An example I've used before is sometimes when I sit with couples and talking with them about their marriage, you know, it's often when you're in a tense place in your marriage, you can feel like you're being attacked as the one who's wrong. Sometimes both people can feel attacked as the one who's wrong. And there's a temptation, I've done it, I'm sure some of you have done it, to, to kind of start coming up with a list in your head of the reasons that I'm not so bad. I got my list. So my wife's thinking I'm not such a great husband. Well, I got a list of pretty good husband qualities, and let me give you the list. You know, defend against that. Or a wife's feeling attacked by the husband, I, I got a list. And sometimes I sit with people, those lists come out. They out loud start telling me, here's my list. So she must be wrong or he must be wrong because here's my list. And again, I understand that. If we feel attacked, it's tempting to do that. But sometimes as I've sat with people, one of the things I've asked them is, good list. That's a good husband list. 
or that's a good wife list. Now, help me understand. Let's take number one on that list. Help me understand how that behavior or that action is about that person who's sitting right beside you right now. Tell me that story. I want to know how that, how based on your understanding of them and who they are, that's a good thing to do out of love for them. Let's put those two together somehow. The behavior and the relationship it serves. Let's match them. And many times as we walk through that process, I find some people have a hard time doing that. Because I've not really thought of it that way. It's just a good list. It's the list that makes me justified. It's the list that I can say I'm good. I've got the right list. And I've not really thought about that list is meaningless unless it loves your spouse. So how does it love your spouse? Sometimes as people walk through the list, I think they kind of find, actually, it really is driven by love for my spouse. Sometimes their spouse gets to find out, you know what? Actually, they really are loving me pretty well. How do those two connect? We all have got lists like that, don't we? We've got Christian lists. We've got lists that we would say, you know, that's my list. I'm a pretty good Christian. I've got a list. There's things I'm doing. Tell me how that list connects to the other. Tell me how that list is about love for God and love for the other. Put that list, that appearance, that maybe good activity, together with its real purpose. Bring those two together somehow. So think about it this week. Maybe take an area and really put some effort into it. Second, seek to make someone feel valued and included this week that you might normally avoid or dismiss. You know, there are those clear cases where I just think somebody, I look at them and think somehow they are second-class citizens. You know, I have a hard time wanting to include them. There's times when that's really obvious. Tell you the truth, a lot of times it's not so obvious. A lot of times we're not even aware of the ways in which we kind of treat someone as second class. We kind of think of them as a little less than us, even within the community of God's people, that we do that. Sometimes there's issues like race or nationality or level of education or income, gender. Uh, maybe it's part of someone's past story. Uh, sometimes it's just their physical appearance. We have all kinds of ways that maybe we're not even that aware of that we are somehow avoiding or dismissing and pushing someone down a little bit to a second-class position. This week, maybe give some thought to that. Take a look. Ask God to reveal to you or maybe some places that you do that. And then seek to actually reach out and include and invite in and lift the other up. Remind yourself, this isn't just something I'm doing good for them. This is me living in the truth. The truth is we do stand shoulder to shoulder before Christ. Live it out. The last one, pray Psalm 139, 23 to 24 each night this week. So pick a time to pray this passage. And here's what the passage says. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So take a little period of time every day this week. And make that your prayer. Come before our holy God. Lay your life before God and say, God, I really do want to see. I don't want to hold on to my sin. Even the sins I'm not aware of, God, I want you to help me see. Because I don't want them to be an obstacle to my relationship with you. God, I want to come before you because I trust you to be the one who will forgive and lift me back up. I don't have to be afraid to lay them before you. I want to see them. I want to know them. Because, God, I want to experience your forgiveness. So take a moment. And listen, think, reflect on those things. Listen for what God may be telling you. Give it a try. So, um, you may think of some better ideas. 
pick one of these maybe, and put into practice that we are a people who get to come before our great God. He invites us in. He invites our neighbor in. What a thing to celebrate. Let's, uh, let's put it in practice this week. Let's pray. And Lord, how thankful we are that we come before you. You truly, um, you are waiting to receive us. Lord, that you are waiting to forgive our sins and to lift us up and to send us on. We're thankful that we don't walk into this world alone, that you walk with us. That we have your guidance and your strength. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who take full advantage of those great privileges that are ours because of you. And Lord, I also pray that we would be a people who when we come together, this doesn't just become an insider place, but this becomes a place that has experienced your grace and your love and can't wait to share it with others and invite others in. In your blessed name, amen. Will you please stand as we respond in worship?